As we continue our series in Genesis, this morning we look at one of those truly fascinating passages of, of Scripture. And we're going to draw some very important lessons for our lives from the life of, of Jacob because uh, it is there for us to learn something from. It's not just an interesting story, but we're going to see how, what is God trying to say to us here this morning and I hope we, we've come with a heart to listen. Now last week we saw how Jacob and his large household finally made the break from Haran and his father-in-law Laban. As we have seen, those 20 years were not easy years. Most of the time was hard and difficult for Jacob. Over and over again, promises were made and promises were broken. Wages were set and changed again and again. They didn't leave in the best of terms. He basically had to sneak out of the land, run away. And Rachel was a little bit even more sneakier. She snuck a few little gods from her father and stole them. Now, despite all of this, God was protecting Jacob and his family. But as far as Jacob is concerned, there were still matters to resolve. It could be a case of out of the fire and into the fry pan, in a way. As difficult as Laban was, there was something even more difficult that he needed to resolve with his brother. In verses 1 and 2, we look at another angel encounter. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God, so he named that place Mahanaim. As he was travelling along, the angels of God met him, as they do. It's just such a, the way it's put here is such a matter of fact, isn't it? You always be thinking this is just a natural event, but not so. Remember that he met angels on his way to Haran, on the stairway from heaven. Now they appear to him on his way out. These angels must have resembled the angels that Jacob had seen at Bethel, for he would, you know, he readily recognizes them. They appear to join his company of travellers. Why? Well, for reassurance, for protection. Last week we saw how Laban had come with his, with his army with ill intent towards his son-in-law to, to strike fear into him and, and take away everything that he felt was his. But his troubles aren't over as a result of that angelic encounter. And uh, we know that God is preparing him for something much bigger. Jacob becomes aware of the things that he needs to make right with Esau. 
And uh, in a way, this is a, a primer, this episode of the angels appearing and, and being with him are, are a primer, a prelude of things to come for his divine encounter later on. Now, in verses 3 to 8, we look, we see the unfinished business. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau, that's from verse 3, in the land of Seir, the, the, the country of Edom, because that's where Esau's descendants, and later on, the land of Edom becomes, is mentioned by the prophets and others, that's Esau's descendants. And it says, now I'm sending this message to my Lord. Look at how he describes his brother. He humbles himself and calls his brother Lord that I may find find favour in his eyes. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, that's verse 6, and now he is coming to meet you. Fantastic. Except that he's bringing 400 men with him. It's not one or two or just a couple of buddies. And so, quite rightly so, in fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. He has to face his estranged brother, worried for very good reason. Just a few days earlier, Jacob sent these messengers with a message of, peace and reconciliation. And when they return, they brought him the news that, yep, he's coming. Now Jacob is quaking in his boots, in his sandals, let us say, in great fear and distress. How would you feel? His greatest fear is that his brother is... is He's going to get even after all of these years. This sibling rivalry has been simmering along and and the the anger must have built up in Esau's heart after all this time. This was between Jacob and Esau. Two boys. The, the, The fight started in the womb. Remember the heel grabbing? continued in the kitchen, the outdoors and all of that. It just, there's something about the brothers infighting in the family right throughout Genesis, isn't it? It doesn't stop with these guys. Between Jacob and Esau, two brothers, but now it involves not just them but the family as well. There are wives, there are children, there are servants. They're all innocent parties to this whole thing. And they, they're all having to, in a way, pay the price for the stupidity of his younger days, of his foolishness, the younger years. As night has fallen on the Jabok River, he is left to wonder and ponder what tomorrow will bring. In some ways it's like the, the sentenced prisoner about to walk the green mile. He will have to come face to face with a brother that he cheated all that time ago. Well, you know, we, 
we all want and, and need to move on in, in life. That, that's a genuine want, isn't it? A genuine desire. We just want to move on. But there are times that when sooner or later you've got to go back and, and, and face your unfinished business. Those things that we haven't resolved, those things that are hanging in the air. You've got to go back and confront your past. The people you hurt, the mistakes you've made. You've got to own up to what you did. You can't just go through life and, and, and simply say, it doesn't matter now because God has saved me and, and, and it's all good. I'm, I've, I've reached another level now. And, and whether my family understands it or, or my friends and others understand or not, it, I don't care. Well, you have to care. And, but you have to at least try and make things right. You have to come back and you say, I, I am sorry for everything that I've done. I am a new person now and, and let me show it to you if you just give me the chance. Now, not everybody's willing to offer you that chance. But as far as it depends on you, the Bible says, live at peace with everybody. Life doesn't always work as beautiful and as we think it does. Now, Jacob is learning that truth the hard way. In verses 9 to 13, a night of prayer, then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two camps. I've gotten bigger. Look at all I have. I had nothing when I came over. And now look at me. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid he will come and attack me and the mothers with their children. And he says he spent the night there. Jacob obviously feared that that would be his, his last day. If you knew it was going to be, if you feared that it was going to be your last day, you will find it hard to sleep, I would suggest. I find it hard to sleep at night when something exciting is happening the next day, where I'm going on a trip, I'm going to the bush. I can't sleep. I just, I just want to get out there. That's me anyway, by the way. But, have you ever, can you relate to anything of Jacob when the next day you, I don't know, might be a court appearance. It, it, it might be a, a, a visit to the doctor because the results don't look too good and, and you just fear that the doctor is going to it's going to be using the C word because that doesn't look too good. 
Can you relate to any of this? And you can't sleep at night. What do you do? All the difficulties in for 20 years with Laban and all that stuff, it, 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 that looked like a walk in the park compared to what you're facing now. You can't undo the past because that's not the way that life works. You can't go and undo them. You can only face up to that. What, do you, what does he do? He does the right thing for once. He comes to the Lord in prayer. Jacob is growing in stature here. He is here. Listen to his prayer. He, he admits his unworthiness. He prays for protection. He humbly thanks God, knowing that he's unworthy of all the blessings that God has given him. It's funny, but when everything is at stake, suddenly a night of prayer is no burden, is it? It's hard to get people to pray the best of times, but sometimes it's just that much easier when everything is at stake. Prayer is, is a lifeline. Just following on, if you have a loved one in intensive care or you know, there's only a thread of hope. I'm sure that we will struggle to sleep and, and say, well, just spend the night praying. Your hunger for food is, is replaced for a hunger for God. You have nothing else left. You, are, you have nothing more. What else are you going to do? But pray. In verses 13 to 23, we have the offering, the gifts, for he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later on, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. Make no mistakes, these, these are very generous gifts, very generous. All those camels and donkeys and goats and sheep and all of that, it was worth a lot of money. And he truly wanted to make things right as, as he sought reconciliation with his brother. Why such an impressive gift? Yes, it could be seen as a bribe or a payoff for his deception. It could also be seen as an act of restitution. Restitution is, is also part of reconciliation and, and evidence of a, of a truly changed heart. I know there are a lot of connotations to that word these days, but it is in fact something that we see the example of this in the Bible. In Luke chapter 19, in Luke 19 we read the story of Zacchaeus after Jesus met with him. And one of the evidences of his sincerity was when he said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. That's from Luke chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. Like Zacchaeus, restitution was evidence that we are dealing with genuine repentance, that it was sincere. If you're carrying a lot of baggage, becoming a believer doesn't, like I said before, necessarily get you off the hook for making restitution when appropriate, when it is desired. It could be God moving your heart to make amends. It is not a bribe, it is simply trying to make things right. In verses 24 to 25, we have this divine struggle. We come here to the, to the crux of the, the message this morning. Not just this morning, I believe this is the, the life of Jacob. This is what defines Jacob to Israel and Israel as the people. What happens here in this event, in verses 24 to 25, this is what we... We read what we read. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. God has at last gotten Jacob exactly where he wants him. Everybody is on the other side of the river. Geographically, I'm talking here, but spiritually as well. Everybody is on the other side and now God is alone with Jacob. Jacob is standing between his past struggles with Laban and the impending struggle with Esau, which is yet to be resolved. Jacob doesn't know it, but God is the initiator of this conflict. And and God comes to Jacob at this very important moment in his life because he wants Jacob to to realise that his struggle all along has not been with with his brother, with his dad, with his father-in-law, with his wives... The struggle has been with God himself. That's been the struggle of his life. He would not yield. Now one of the big problems God has with most of us is getting us to slow down long enough to hear his voice. Amongst in the midst of all this noise, pollution, everything clamouring for attention. We're always on the move, always talking, never stopping just to listen to him with undivided attention. Some homes have two or three televisions going at the same time because we can't stand the, the sound of silence. Seems like the, the song by... Art and Garfunkel is a long time ago.
Tonight we'll actually look at solitude, like Andrew said, and if you, if you, if God is speaking to you that you, this is an area of your life that you need to grow in, hearing from God, well, we want to help you that, with that. So what does God do? If we won't slow down on our own, and I mean that, if we won't slow down on our own, He'll step in and slow us down. I'm sure some of you, many of you here know exactly what that feels like. It might be a visit to the emergency room. It might be a stay in hospital. It might be a family crisis. It might be financial disaster. It it takes on so many different forms and God is saying, You didn't listen when I whispered. Now I'm blowing a trumpet here. What's it going to take you to slow down, to listen? So suddenly the man grabs Jacob and begins to wrestle with him to the ground. Jacob fights back desperately thinking he might be a bandit or possibly an assassin sent by by Esau. That's, That's his fear. It could be anybody. You're alone. Who is he and and where did he come from? On and on these men wrestle. It is night. He's grabbing, struggling, rolling around in the dust, aiming to take advantage, looking to pin the other to the ground. They don't talk. Jacob is is desperate, he's he's battling for his life here. The other man, later on, Jacob will discover that the man was really God himself. Verse 30. I believe, as many others do, that this mystery man was actually the pre-incarnate Christ. Not just any angel, but Christ himself. If so... If this was God, if this was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, why didn't he just subdue Jacob then? Well, to demonstrate to Jacob that no matter how, how much strength he thought he had, he was in fact no match for God. Years ago, we're talking about the, the golden years of Australian politics. To paraphrase the words of Paul Keating to John Hewson, he wanted to do him slowly. God was bringing Jacob to the end of himself. And... and Just a light touch, the lightest of touches is all it takes and and Jacob feels his his thigh bone pull out of his socket. Inside the socket, I know you've never pulled a socket apart, alright, but there is a tendon inside the socket that joins anyway. You're all vegetarians, you don't know what I'm talking about. Huge pain. 
huge pain, paralysis, weakness. It's all there. Why the thigh? Because that is, that is the, the largest, the strongest muscle from that point. It goes right down your leg, that, that tendon, that, that's so important. It is the largest, strongest muscle of the body. And Jacob was crippled to the point, in the point of his greatest strength, he was crippled there. Jacob was finding out that when you wrestle with God, you always lose. You're not going to win if you wrestle with God. Now, in, in one sense, this is unfair. It's an unfair fight because at the end, God, from a, a purely human perspective, makes a move that is outside the rules below the belt, if you may. Sometimes it appears that God is unfair in the way that he treats us. It's unfair. I'm going to tell, tell, this is a joke, alright? Please don't take it too seriously. It is a joke, alright? Please, I don't want to hear any arguments at the end of the service. There was a game of golf. There was Moses, there was Jesus, and there's the father having a game of golf. This is not from the Bible, okay? Repeat that. Anyway, so there are the, at the tee. Moses takes his first shot, takes a swing, and into the water, into the water trap. So, anyway... Moses walks down there, lifts his club up and the water's part. And he just chips it in in the green, two shots into the hole. Then Jesus steps up to the, to the, the green. You know, too often, Jesus has a swing. Same thing, same spot. But Jesus' ball actually lands on a, on a water lily. The golf ball is sitting on a water lily in the middle of the, the pond. So what does Jesus do? Jesus simply walks on the water, chips <laughs> it in to the hole, two shots. Then the father comes to the tee. Father uh, just takes a swing, the ball goes everywhere. It's just anywhere. And the other guys are just looking at each other. And the ball goes out, out of the fairway. It, hits, it goes around the street. It gets hit by a truck. From the truck, it hits a tree. From the tree, it bounces on the same pond where the lily was. And there it sits on the lily. And then this frog comes out of the pond. It grabs the ball by its mouth. Then an eagle comes down and takes the frog and as the eagle squeezes the frog, the frog sort of spits the ball out and the ball lands in front of the hole and rolls into the hole. A hole in one. And Moses turns to Jesus and says, 
That is why I hate playing with your father. Does God play fair? Do you have a feeling sometimes God plays unfair with you all the time? Job, for chapter after chapter after chapter, had this ongoing discussion, argument with God about the fairness of God. Sometimes it appears that God is unfair in the way that he treats us. We've gone through a hard time perhaps and seen the life crumble around us and we've cried out, God, that's not fair. And the answer might come back, but we're not playing by your rules, are we? We're playing by my rules now. Before this night Jacob was running the show. Now he realises that with God, he is nothing. Without God, he is nothing. All his huffing and puffing was, has brought him to, to this point to realise just how, how helpless he is. How helpless when compared to the strength of God. Before he used his wits to deceive Esau and trick Isaac and then he's attempted to trick his father-in-law and now he's starting to understand the meaning of the words which were after his time, not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord. Until we are broken, broken by God, we can never actually be greatly used by God. It's like that horse that needs to be broken before he can be used. A.W. Tozer once said, the Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has conquered him. Until he has conquered him. It is only when our, our, our greatest energies are surrendered to God that our lives can be radically redirected and change. That's when it happens. And now the hunger for the blessing, verses 26 to 29. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until unless you bless me. Jacob can't fight anymore and all he can do is hold on, cling on in desperation with everything he has. He, he was clinging. He's no longer fighting, holding on. If we insist on fighting the Lord and all that he's trying to do in and through us, he will eventually bring us to the place where all the fight is gone. Is that all you got? You got nothing else? Now we can start working. And, and he knows exactly 
where and how to touch your life and my life. And Jacob requests this man to bless him. And Jacob has schemed his way to receive his father's blessing. Remember, he tricked his father for the blessing. He was hungry for the blessing. Now all he can do is beg for it. Beg for it. And the blessing of God must be obtained from God himself. It must be done by clinging to him in helpless dependence. Not by trying to manipulate. The words of Jesus have to scream at us here. He says, apart from me you can do nothing. From John chapter 15. We have to arrive at a place where we stop walking in our own self-sufficiency and we come to the place where we are dependent on him for everything. The thing is, how much do we hunger for it? How much do we hunger for it? Like Jacob was hungering for the blessing here. We, if you like sport, whatever sport, whether it's tennis or Aussie rules or, or soccer and all of this, we, we enjoy and, and vicariously celebrate great victories of our champions on our screens. It doesn't actually make any difference in our lives, but we, we love it when they win. We love it when they play. We love it when they conquer, when they get the trophy. We celebrate. But very few people actually want to take it to the next level and actually try on becoming a swimming champion or a tennis champion or whatever it is to, to endure the discipline, the sacrifice, the struggle that it requires to get there. Recently, uh, Roger Federer won Wimbledon. He won the Aussie Open and, and Wimbledon at the age of 35. Incredible feat. Then the reporters asked him uh, about how he was still at the top of his game and still winning the majors and he responded, since my generation and Rafa's, that's Rafael Nadal, since my generation and Rafa's generation, the next one hasn't been strong enough to push us all out. It just hasn't been there. So the old folks are hanging on because there's no, everybody else, Let's take it to a church. The ministry is done by the old people because the younger ones don't want to get involved. There's not the sacrifice. Let's, if, if you want it badly enough, if you're hungry enough, you're going to get there. So there, there has to be this, this real push, this real desire to get to the top. And he says here in verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob but Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. That translation is a little bit, is, it can be taken both ways. In the Hebrew, there's a word play here. The older version has Israel is, uh, is translated as the one who prevails with God. That's what Israel means, the one who prevails with God. But literally, it means the opposite, God who prevails with man. 
It means that not that Jacob struggled with God and won, but God struggled with Jacob and won. This is the night when Israel was born. The name that defines the people of God for centuries and thousands of years to come. The people of God struggling against their maker, their creator, their God, their redeemer. Despite all this, God still blesses his people. In verses 31 to 32, we limp across the line. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip, as you would. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Many people have described an encounter with God in different ways and uh, it's sometimes a little bit hard to actually understand what they're saying or even trying to believe in because you're saying, is this true or isn't it true? Let me say that if a person does not come back from an encounter with God limping on a dislocated limb, then we might well question whether that person has actually encountered God rather than just a homemade idol. Just some type of experience that doesn't mean very much at all. If you meet God, you're going to know it. You're going to know it. It is better, having met with God, it is better to limp through life trusting God completely than to strut. I don't know if you guys, you children of the 70s, remember Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever? Okay, there's John Travolta and he's dancing, you know. <laughs> and uh, after he's dancing, he's pushing all these girls away and he says, you know what I want to do now? What? What do you want to do? I want to strut. And then the music starts, you know. <laughs> that's, that's a strut, okay? Okay. Are you going to strut in the presence of God after having met with him? Or like Jacob, are you going to... more genuine, isn't it? All the, the, the pride of life is gone and you simply submit to him and say, yep, I met God and here's the evidence. He, he limps across, across the finish line. It's like the, these guys who, I'm going to give up, I'm, I'm going I'm to finish whatever it takes not only did Jacob never forget what happened by the Jabbok River, neither did his uh, descendants. And when Moses wrote these words, 400 years had passed since that night. 
yet it made such a, a major impression on the Israelites that they voluntarily abstained from eating the tendon attached to the socket of the hip. Sadly, sadly, as Jesus will many times point out to the Pharisees, keeping the tradition is the easy part. Learning the lesson from it is much harder because, as we know, these stiff-necked people would go on to struggle with God rather than submitting to his will. So here are some final lessons. So who won the match that night? God. Who lost? Uh, Jacob. But who really won? Jacob. That's the paradox of life, isn't it? When we wrestle with God, we will lose. We always lose, but when we lose, we win. Jesus said, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Matthew 16.25. There's the application. Someone wrote about the spiritual encounters in Jacob's life and I quote, this is what he said. The first was at Bethel where Jacob saw a ladder. At at Jabok he saw the Lord. At Bethel Jacob became a believing man. At Jabok he became a broken man. At Bethel Jacob became a son of God. At Jabok he became a saint of God. At Bethel, he died to his sins. At Jabok, he died to self. He left Bethel with a spring in his step. He left Jabok with a lasting limp, but with a forever changed heart. Every person in this room needs to be able to to say that they have met God personally. The moment that you became his child, forever assured of salvation and eternity with him. And I hope and pray that all of you here this morning have done that. That's salvation. That's Bethel. However, many never go beyond that salvation experience. They never seem to be able to, to produce the fruit for the glory of the Lord. That's why we also need that Jabok experience if we ever hope to be useful for the Lord in his kingdom. Where we yield to his will, to his power, to his wisdom. And then we can truly say, Lord, here I am. Do with me as you will. That's submitting to God in every respect. I hope and pray that the lesson from Jabok is something that we, that we learn very deeply in our hearts, that we'll take it with us and when the circumstances arise, as they surely will, remember the example, what God is saying to us about what it's like to wrestle with God. We might lose and in the end still come out a winner because of the experience of struggling with God. Amen.